0: Good morning, church. Good morning. If you're glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning, say amen. amen. I want you to do something for me this morning. This is a little different. Some of you folks will get this right off the bat. I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to hold them up like this right here. If you need one in, in front of you, the pew Bibles in front of you, those black ones. I want you to put your hand right there. Do y'all, some, some of y'all know what I'm getting ready to You remember what this used to, to be in church a long time ago? Bible drill, right? We all did this, and then you had to put your hand right there, and then they'd give you a passage, and you'd have to go real quick to find it. Well, I want you to... uh, Now, we're not going to really do this. Like, I'm not giving away prizes today or anything. (laughs) Maybe I should. The book of Haggai. When's the last time that that we studied in the book of Haggai? Turn real quickly, if you will, to Haggai chapter 1. Now, some of you are laughing at me because you've already done it. You cheated, is what you are. You guys looked in the uh, bulletin and found out what passage I was going to be preaching this morning. And now you're sitting there looking all super spiritual. You're not super spiritual. You looked in the glossary. You looked in the table of contents and found the book of Haggai this morning. I will warn you, though, as you're looking for the book of Haggai, it is between the two Z's in the Old Testament. It's between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And the book's only 38 verses long, so if you blink or if you miss it, it's going to be on the front of one page and the back of the other, probably in your Bible. I think it's actually on page 868 if you're using the black pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, Haggai is not a book of the Bible that we look for or look to very frequently, but I believe God's got a great message in there that's for all of us this morning. And so we'll be spending a little bit of time in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 today. While you're finishing turning now I'll tell you about a video I saw on YouTube this week. Some of you may have seen this before. Uh, I was looking at a a video about um, men's responses to women, which is just dangerous to Google on YouTube anyway. And so uh, the idea was this. It was a Christian lecturer. It was a Christian speaker. He was trying to be a comedian. He actually did a pretty good job being a comedian, and uh, he was a former pastor, and he went to three different women in his church. And he just asked them, do you ever have trouble getting your husband to do what you tell him to do? And uh, he said that every one of those women responded with something like, you know, pastor, I do have that trouble. And so they went on for a few minutes, each one of them telling them, you know, I told him to do this, and I told him that. And you know, pastor, he would not do that. I could not get him to do that. And so he he was doing this on purpose, and so he purposely let them get all the way through it. And then he asked them, "Well, did you tell him to do it twice?" And he said to a person that each one of those ladies said, "I shouldn't have to tell him to do it twice." Now, some of you ladies are some of you men are laughing, so we're like, (laughs) and you ladies are laughing like, "Yeah, that's right. It's exactly what they're like." I. I got to think it all in those terms this week because it goes into what, what we're going to be studying from Haggai this morning. And if you're parents of children, you know exactly what that feels like, right? Telling your kids to do something and them not doing it. Linda's down here, really big, yeah, like that right there. You know what it's like to tell them to do something and they not do it. The younger they are, you'd think the worse they'd be at that. But I got news for you: it's the teenagers, amen, <laughs> that don't do that. And my kids are going to get mad at me because I'm using them as an example. Kids, that's what you get when your daddy preaches. Um, so we've got a trash can in our kitchen like most people do, right? And our kids are told when the trash is full, what are they supposed to do? Empty the trash. Jennifer's going to laugh at this. You go to any, any given time to our house and you're going to see the trash can up to here and then you're going to see like an empty pizza box on top of a couple of empty water bottles On top of a a cracked egg, on top of all balanced on a half-eaten corn cob, and it's all stacked up about this high. Now the trash can ends here, but the stuff on top of it. And I'm looking at that, thinking that's pretty good, kids. That y'all could actually stuff that much trash on top of it, so you don't have to take out the trash, right? And so the kids will wander in the into the kitchen, and they'll they'll you know flies will be all around the trash can, and gnats will be flying all around the thing, and the kids will come in there and they'll go. I smell something. Something stinks in here. And Jennifer and I are sitting there going, pointing to the trash can, like, yeah, really? You don't say. <laughs> something stinks in here. Kids don't do what we always tell them to do. I, I walked by the kids' bathroom this week, and, and uh, the upstairs bathroom is totally the kids. Jennifer and I don't go in there, which is probably a mistake. And so we got a closet in there, and we tell them, you can use the bottom of this closet for a clothes hamper. You know, throw your dirty clothes down at the bottom of the, of the clothes hamper. And so I walked by there this week and I had to do a double take because I looked in there and the closet door was flung open and clothes were just flowing out of there just in a big heap. And I just looked at that for a minute because it's right beside the toilet. And I looked at that for a minute and I said, how are our kids going to the bathroom? (laughs) There's so much clothes here. They'll do anything that they can to get out of taking the trash out. They'll do anything that they can to get out of bringing their dirty clothes downstairs, which is what they've been told to do. And so inevitably, just like every other parent in this room and every other parent in the history of humanity, we have to tell our kids, not once, most times not twice, <laughs> but multiple times for them to do what they've already been told to do. And we laugh about that and we giggle about that and, and, and around our house it's become a bit of a joke and um, whether that's good, bad or indifferent, we all have stories like that to laugh about and there's underlying reasons for that. Some of it's you know, procrastination, I'll do it later, or I'm too busy, things are going on. Some of it's just flat out laziness. Um, but you know what? As I was studying Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 today, some of it's just flat out disobedience. And whenever God tells us to do something, whenever God gives us a direct command or an imperative or an instruction, whatever He tells us to do and we don't do it, it's not a laughing matter anymore. All of a sudden, it puts us in immediate contradiction to what God has advised us to do and what God has instructed us to do. And so I've titled my message this morning, What Are You Waiting For? What are you waiting for? I want you to ask yourself that question when we read Haggai here in just a minute. When we read some of the background passages in Ezra, whenever we're walking through this text together and we see the conflict and the consequences, I want you to ask yourself the question, What is it that I'm waiting for? Because as we look through this tiny book of Haggai this morning, this is what we're going to find. We're going to find that the people of Israel, the people from the, the two tribes of Judah had been in captivity to Babylon for 70 years. And they are released from their captivity to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's what they have been told to do. That's the direct command that they were given. And yet they chose, and those two words are important, they chose to do something else. They chose to take that uh, priority, they chose to take that imperative and to move it down their list of priorities. And they did so on purpose. And listen to me, beloved, any time that you choose to put your priorities over God's priorities, it's not going to work out that well. Sometimes there's tangible evidence and sometimes there's not. But it doesn't work out that well. Let's read about it together, if you will. Stand with me this morning as we look at the book of Haggai, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. If you're ready for the Word of God this morning, say hallelujah. hallelujah. In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says... The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied." You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Verse 12 says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we read this today that we will be moved to show reverence to You. Father, I pray that as we study this this morning that we will indeed consider our ways and ask ourselves the question, what are we waiting for? With regards to obedience, what is it this morning, Lord, that you have showed us? What is it that you have told us? What is it that you have commanded us? What is it that you have shared with us that now, Lord, we have been called to do, but we are not doing? We are not following. We've turned away to other priorities in our lives. Father, would You reveal that even to me in the pulpit this morning and to every person within the hearing of my voice so that, Lord, we may be able to repent and be right with You and put our priorities in the correct order today. I ask this, Lord, in the name of Christ Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to throw you another curve here. It's helpful whenever you're reading through some of these minor prophets to go back and look at some of the historical context in which this is written. Looking back at the book of Ezra will be very helpful to us. So I encourage you to go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra for just a couple of minutes. We're going to look at about a half dozen verses there. Think of it this way. The book of Ezra gives you the historical narrative, whereas the book of Haggai gives you that specific prophet's commentary. So Ezra gives us the historical narrative. It tells us the story from a historical perspective. And then Haggai gives you his perspective as the one who's sharing this in real time with the people of Judah. Let's look at Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip down to verse 5. This will sound familiar because we just read it in Haggai chapter 1. So Ezra chapter 1 says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he also put it in writing, saying this, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there are, or whoever there is among you all, his people... May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. So he gives them a command. He's saying they've been in captivity for 70 years. By the way, the captivity was prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah told them it's going to happen. They put their, Judah put their own priorities instead of God's priorities. Therefore, they were exiled to captivity for 70 years. So it happened the way Jeremiah said it would. And then Jeremiah also prophesied but after 70 years you're going to be brought out. And so this is fulfillment of this prophecy. So the people of Judah were being brought out. Cyrus made a decree and he said, go and rebuild the temple and I'm going to give you the resources to rebuild the temple. It says in verse 5, then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So we see here that they're actually going out. They're actually being released from captivity and they're actually returning to Jerusalem. Now, if you'll flip over to chapter 3, so we, chapter 2 of the book of Ezra tells you the numbers of those who are going out. And so here we see the procession as they return to 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 Judah, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And then we get to chapter 3. Let's read a couple of verses there. Verses 1 and 2. Now when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And then Jeshua, who is Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and his brothers the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they, they, they've left captivity, they've arrived in Jerusalem, and they're building the altar in verses 1 and 2. Look down in verse 8 of Ezra chapter 3. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Jeru- uh, yeah, Jeruzabel, Zeruzabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So the altar's built, and now the temple is beginning to be real built. And then if we skip down two verses to verse 10, it says, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. So here's your picture. They leave captivity. They have a command and a decree from Cyrus to go and rebuild the temple. This is a command of God. This is what their charge was to do. We get to Ezra chapter 3 and we see them arrive. We see them rebuild the altar. We see them get the the foundation of the temple rebuilt and laid. And then we see them beginning to worship. Everything is happening as it should here in Ezra chapter 3. We're not going to read this, but if you keep going in Ezra chapter 4, what you find is that all of a sudden the people of Judah get off track. All of a sudden they begin doing other things. And the reason they start doing that is because the Samaritans, who were the, the sworn enemies of, of the Jewish people, the sworn enemy of the Israelites, began to threaten them. They began to th- frighten them. Ezra chapter 4, verse 4, I think, even says that they discouraged them and they frightened them. They began to intimidate them. And so as they were working toward the temple, all of a sudden, they began to become frightened. And the people of Judah turned away from the priority of rebuilding the temple, which was their command, their imperative. And they turned their priorities to something else. At the very moment of opposition, the moment that they needed to turn to God the most, they decided to turn to themselves instead. And obviously, as we read Haggai chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn back there, they chose to ignore God because of things like laziness and procrastination and busyness and fear. But the root of it all was this right here. If you listen to me, wave at me. The root of it all was this they chose their way over God's way. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? They chose their way over God's way. And there are four things I want us to see from these 12 verses in Haggai. Five things to recognize about Israel choosing their way over God's way. By the way, these also correlate to you and to me. These are five things that happen to you and to me whenever we choose our way over God's way. Number one, conflict happens. Conflict happens. Choosing any other way than God's way will always lead you into conflict. Now, I can't figure out why, the, old, why, why the, the tribes of Judah didn't remember this. Amen. This is the theme of the Old Testament. I've said this multiple times. It just continues to baffle me. The more I study Scripture, the more I'm confused by it. We look at the book of Exodus. I preached on this before. Exodus chapter 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses tells them to stay at the foot of the mountain. They look up and they see the glory, the Shekinah glory of God on the mountain. They're sitting there at the foot of the glory of God. Moses ascends the mountain to receive the law of God. And while he's up there, he's up there from from chapters 19 through 31 in Exodus. But when he comes down at the beginning of chapter 32, what are the people of Israel doing? They've forgotten about Moses and they're partying. They've created golden images to bow down to. Why? Because they've turned to their way instead of God's way. You see this all the way throughout the Old Testament. One of the Ten Commandments, "...Thou shalt have no other gods before me." But yet Israel and Judah continued to do that throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 78 verses 11 through 17 says this. Listen to these verses. Speaking of the Israelites and their rebellious ways. They did not keep the covenant of God, and they refused to walk in His law. They forgot His deed and His miracles that He had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt and in the field of Zon. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and He made the waters to stand up like a heap. He led them with a cloud by day and all night with the light of fire. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet still they continued to sin against Him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. Throughout the Old Testament, I continue to look at that and I say, why is Israel doing that? What are they thinking? What is wrong with Israel? And then lo and behold, I turn to the, one of the shortest books of the Bible, one of the most forgotten books of the Bible, Haggai, and I see him doing it again. And this, after they've just come out of, Seventy years of captivity. Look at the conflict. I want you to contrast in verses 2 and 3 what the people say and what God says. It's easy to see the conflict. Look in verse 2. Thus the Lord of hosts said, this is God saying this about the people. The people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. They're saying, it's not time yet. By the way... Uh, some Bible scholars I read this week said that the period that elapsed there was around probably 16 years from the time that the foundation was laid till this reading right here in Haggai chapter 1 there was 16 years had passed and yet the people were saying "Eh, the time still hadn't come yet and then look at verse 3 this is what God says in contrast to what the people say verse 3 says the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies Desolate. In other words, here they are. They've, they, they've constructed for themselves a lifestyle of their own. They've, they've built a life that they are comfortable with. They have built accommodations that they feel like they can live in comfortably and well and within reason. But yet, the very command that they had been given, which was to rebuild the temple, eh, it wasn't quite time for that yet. One Bible commentator I read this week said, As Israel began to settle in, they got used to life without the temple. Old Testament history tells us how important the temple was in the life of the Israelites and the people of Judah. It was the center of everything about their life. It was the heart of their worship. It was everything in their life was meant to revolve around the temple. It wasn't just a place of worship, but it was a place of remembrance. It was a place that demonstrated what God had done on their behalf. How could they forget the priority of the temple when it was so important to them, but now by their inaction in rebuilding the temple, they were demonstrating once again, once again, once again, they were demonstrating that their own personal priorities were more important than God. If you listen to me, say amen. You will always, always, always find yourself in conflict with God when your lack of fellowship with God causes you to disobey the commands of God. If you're not obeying Him, if you're not in fellowship with Him, if you're not communing with Him in His Word, if you've put anything else above Him, then trust me, your lack of fellowship with God will always cause you to disobey God. So what are your priorities this morning, church? Hey, listen, I had to answer this question for myself this week. You don't just turn to Haggai and say, Oh, I think it'd be cool to preach a sermon from Haggai today. No, listen, this was meant for me. And I had to ask myself that question as I was preparing this week and even some last week. Are my personal priorities aligned with God's priorities? Or am I trying to do life on my own? Let's face it, it's pretty easy to do life on our own, isn't it? We've constructed... Just like the Israelites constructed paneled houses, we've constructed a pretty nice way of living our life. And we've even found a way to exclude God, or at the very least to push, him, push, push God down here to the side a little bit. And we'll bring Him up when we need Him. And we'll bring Him out like an instruction book when something's broken and we need to figure out how to fix it. But it's been far too convenient for us to deal with our paneled houses and put God off to the side and make Him a lower priority. In our life. That's a shame to me, brother and sisters, and it ought to be a shame to you. If you're doing life without God and apart from fellowship with Him, you are and you will live in conflict with a holy God. That ought to scare us. Amen? Whatever happened to holy fear in the life of believers? Whatever happened to being concerned that we're living in conflict with a holy God? I don't want to point out here. It would be easy for us to look at this passage and say, well, Pastor Troy, point of order. They didn't say we're not going to rebuild the temple. They didn't say I'm not going to do it. They just said it's not the right time. They didn't say that we're going to deliberately disobey God. We're just saying it's not the right time. By the way, have you ever pulled that one on God before? Have you ever, have you ever known the will of God in your life You've sensed God moving in your life. Which, by the way, that's not just some arbitrary feeling. This right here tells us exactly where we ought to be. Amen? Have you ever read something in here and said, God yeah, sounds good, but it's just not the right time. I think I'll do that. But the timing's not right. I can only imagine some of the excuses that the, Samarit- uh, that the uh, Israelites thought over as they were trying to you know, uh, explain away why they haven't obeyed God to Haggai. Well, the Samaritans are out to get us, and they're going to stop us anyway, so why should we do it? Or, we don't have the resources to build. Which, by the way, that's not one either, because Cyrus, the king who sent them out, and Darius, the new king, already said that they were going to rebuild the temple. That's why they sent the, the, the two men that they did with them to rebuild the temple. But they might have said, we don't have the resources. Maybe they just said, it's just too hard, God. Haggai, you don't understand. It's just too difficult for us to be able to do that. Have you ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? Anybody in here heard of J. Vernon McGee? J. Vernon McGee is an old-time pastor. If you get up early enough, you can still hear J. Vernon McGee on the the radio, by the way, here in Louisville. Uh, Listen to what he said. Saying that it's the Lord's will to do this or not to do that is a Christian cliche that covers a multitude of sins. He said it's a Christian cliche, meaning it's something we pull out whenever we think we need a wild card before God to be able to say, I don't really want to do that, God. It's just not time yet. I'll wait. It'll happen later, God. But that's not really the way it happens, does it? God doesn't want our excuses. He wants our obedience. And listen to me. I think this is real. This is what I tell our kids. To obey slowly is to disobey. Amen? To obey slowly is to disobey. I think it's the same way with God. God, The people of Israel here were obeying slowly. I don't think they ever said, we're not going to do it. They just said, we're going to do it in our own time. But in this regard, they were actually disobeying God. And the Israelites at the beginning of this chapter, in verses 2 and 3, were in conflict because they were outright disobeying God. Second thing I want us to say about this, the second thing to recognize about Israel choosing their way instead of God's way is the consequences. we got the conflict Now, beginning in verse 4, we see the consequences. I'm sorry, beginning in verse 5, we see the consequences. It says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Now he says, Consider your ways twice in here. Both of them are emphasized with an exclamation point. Both of them are meant to get the attention of the Israelites. But they were used in two different ways. They were a qualifier for two different purposes. This verse 5, when he says, Consider your ways, that literally can be translated, Set your heart to this. Set your heart toward this. He was telling the people of Israel, the the people from the tribes of Judah, listen to me and and set your mind and your heart on this very thing. And the thing that he's pointing to is their consequences. And he lists about five different things in verse 6. He advised them to consider these consequences that have come upon you because of your choice to disobey. He says, you've sown much, but you've harvested little. Think about this for a moment. That land had lied fallow for a long time. They were in captivity for 70 years, meaning no one had planted crops there. No one had tried to sow seed there. No one had tried to grow anything there. That land should have been bursting forth with produce because it had been lying fallow. But instead it said, you sow much, but you reap little. Why was that? Because of their disobedience. It says that you eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but you're still cold. You're not warm enough. You earn money, but you're putting it in a purse that has holes. The analogy, the symbolism that he's using here is you've got stuff, but you don't have what you could have because you're not in obedience. You're not experiencing the full blessings of God because of your disobedience. And see the irony they thought they were doing well. I have to believe that they thought that they were okay. It doesn't indicate here that they were in want. It doesn't indicate here that they were struggling. It doesn't indicate here that they did not have. It just indicates that they didn't have as much as they could have had. And it was because of their disobedience. It was because of their ignorance and their non-conformity to the will of God. They were being punished because of this disobedience in rebuilding the temple. And if you skip down a few verses, you see in verses 9 through 11 that he even begins to explain the nature of that disobedience. Why don't you have enough? He says in, in verse 9, he says, You look for much, it becomes little, because when you bring it home, I blow it away. He says in verse 10, The sky has withheld its dew, the earth has withheld its provost. I called for a drought on the land. He's revealing the exact nature of their consequences. Consequences, listen to me, consequences often follow conflict with God, don't they? And I pray that you haven't realized that in a large extent in your life. But if you're really serious and you're really humble about thinking through that, consequences often follow conflict. Philippians 2.21, the Apostle Paul even says there that those who seek your own interests uh, sometimes uh, not the things of Christ, the people who seek their interest and not those things that Christ would have us to. Think about this. Think about, I had, you do the, uh, I had you do the Bible drills a minute ago. What's one of the most popular children's stories in the Bible? Jonah. Jonah and the whale. We used to hit that about once a month, in children's Sundays go whenever I was, I was that young, many moons ago. And uh, the whole story of Jonah and the whale is very similar to this story right here. What did Jonah do? God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, uh-uh, I'm going to go to Tarshish. Instead. And so, what does he do? He gets on a ship and he starts going the opposite direction of God's will for his life. He starts going the opposite direction of God's command in his life. What God has instructed him to do, Jonah thinks he can go the opposite direction and get away with. Well, what are the consequences in Jonah's life? Stone overboard, swallowed by a whale. Conflict brings about consequences. And what did Jonah do in the belly of the whale? Read Jonah chapter 2. The whole book of Jonah, the whole chapter in chapter 2 is him considering his ways. Jonah's considering what have I done wrong. Jonah's considering where my priorities got messed up. Jonah's considering how can I make it right with a holy God. And in chapter 3 of Jonah, he spit out of the whale's mouth. And where does he go? He goes to Nineveh. And what happens? He preaches... People repent and many are reconciled to God. But it took him understanding his consequences. Jonah got a do over. Got good news for you. God still does do overs. Amen? He still allows us to repent of our sin. He still allows us to repent of our disobedience. He still allows us, first of all, to recognize our disobedience. Sometimes we're caught up in our own lives and priorities so much we don't even recognize we're disobeying God. But God allows us to see what we're doing wrong, to turn away from it, and then to live for Him in obedience. He did it with Jonah. He'll do it for you. He's done it for me. That's what we need to look for. Amen? He did it for Israel frequently, by the way. The whole story of the Old Testament is God giving do-overs. So, four things to recognize about Israel. Number one, their conflict. Number two, their consequences. And number three, and this is where it begins to get good, is their correction. Their correction. Verses 7 and 8 describe God's way of giving the people of Judah a second chance. Again, at the beginning of verse 7, look, He uses that, those three words again. Consider your ways. Set your heart toward this. When He said it in verse 5, He says... Consider your ways with regards to your consequences. Now, he says, consider your ways with regards to the correction. The way that you can get right. The way that you can turn away from what you've done wrong. In verse, five, uh, verse 7, he advises them to consider the correction. And notice how God's commands, His imperatives for our lives don't change. What did He tell them to do? Verse 7, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild... The temple. He didn't come with a different command or imperative than He gave before. He brought with him the same command. We have the same commands in our life. Listen to me. If you listen to me, wave at me. God doesn't give us moving targets. He doesn't say, oh, well, I'm gonna, I want you to obey this now and, and then this later. And at this stage of your life, you need to be here. And at this stage of your life, you need to be there He doesn't give us moving targets. God gives us the same target to follow over and over and over. The same command He gave your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, the fathers in Scripture. He gives us the same commands over and over and over. All He expects for us is obedience. But we fail. And aren't you grateful that God points back to that? When we come back to Him, He's pointing us to that same command and those same standards in your life. Have you ever been in a conversation that felt like you were in a loop? Just over and over. You're just regurgitating the same things over and over. We had a a planning retreat at the seminary this week, and uh, I was there all day Tuesday. And there was one 45-minute conversation that started with a, a question. And then we spent 45 minutes of intense conversation. I mean, really intense conversation. 45 minutes later, guess what we ended with? The same question. We didn't resolve anything. We just went over and over and over the same things. And God's commands are somewhat that way. We can debate them. We can question them. We can run away from them. We can disobey them. We can do whatever we want to keep them on the fringe, but God's commands do not move. God's imperatives are the same. God's standards do not change. In this case, He gave a command. They disobeyed it. Whenever they got, began to get right, God gave them the same command and expected them to obey it there too. Now, what is it in your life that you need to surrender? Because now we start getting to where we have to apply this to our own lives, don't we? So what is it in your life? What are the commands or the imperatives that God's given you in your life that you've chosen to ignore? What is it in your life that you need to give up so that God will be pleased? What is it in your life that you need to give up so that God will receive glory from your life? If the Bible's commanded it, you may begin by ignoring it. You may hope it disappears. You may hope it go away. It's not comfortable it doesn't fit in with my plans for my life, so therefore I'm just going to ignore it. I hope it goes away. So that's what the people of Judah... I'm building my house. I'm comfortable building my house. I want to build my house. That's my priority. And I know God said to build the temple. We're going to do it. We're just not going to do it right now. What is that in your life? That is that? Is it maybe a sin? Maybe it's a, some kind of a, a, a something in your life that is specific like anger or jealousy or covetousness. Some kind of sexual sin. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's something in your life that's taken the place of God in the priority of your life. What's number one to you? What's number one to you? Is it your job? Nowhere in the Bible does it say your job is supposed to become before your worship of God and your service to God. Is it your family? I love my family. Nowhere in scriptures does it say my family is supposed to take precedence over my relationship with God? Maybe it's something you do. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's your kids' sports. What is it that's number one in your life? And then the second part of that question is, how does it match up with what God has commanded and advised you to be doing in your life? If it doesn't match up perfectly, then you're in conflict with God. That's where the people of Israel found themselves. And because of that, they found themselves suffering consequences with God. Here in just a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Here in just a few minutes, we're going to take the bread and the juice, which symbolize the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 has some consequences for those of us who would take the Lord's table without considering our ways. Repenting of our sin. Restoring fellowship with Him. Have you done that? Can you take this table in purity this morning? Or is there consequences coming because of your disobedience? Truth is, if we take the Lord's Supper without rightly judging ourselves and we bring judgment upon ourselves, it's the same principle that Haggai was sharing here. Because you haven't done this, you're suffering this way. Now, get it right. Turn back and do what you've been commanded to do. Brothers and sisters, the message of Haggai chapter 1 could not fit more perfectly with what we're getting ready to do down here in just a few minutes. If there's conflict in your life because you've chosen your way over God's way, maybe you've been sitting here listening to me and you recognize some consequences or possible consequences in your life because of your... Lack of obedience. Maybe, just maybe, God has granted you the ability to recognize the correction. For the people of Judah, rebuild the temple like I told you to. I know it's 16 years later, rebuild the temple. If you recognize that correction in your life, look at verse 12. Actually, verses 12 and 13 of Haggai chapter 1. That's the fourth thing I want you to recognize is Conformity. Conformity. Verse 12 says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listen to this, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. They finally got it right. It took them 16 years or so, but they finally got it right. And listen to the response of God. When they conformed, to God's command, when they conformed to God's plan, when they conformed to God's will for their life. Verse 13 says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord as if he was God's mouthpiece, and he said to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. God was with them. Why was He with them? Because they got right. Because they rebuilt the temple. If you go on and read the rest of Haggai chapter 1, it took them about 24 days after that to just really get blowing and going good. And then they completely and totally rebuilt the temple. One commentator I read this week said this. He said, uh, Haggai had spoken like a foreman on a construction project and the people responded accordingly. I think of Gordon. we got, we got lots of people in here who do construction some people in here who are foremen on construction crews. Whenever the foreman on a construction crew says to do something, he means to do something. Amen? He doesn't mean later. He means that there's a, there's a bunch of things that are waiting to happen, and you do this first so we can get busy doing the other things. And he expects that the Haggai spoke like a foreman on a construction crew. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. Do it. Matthew Henry says this, "...the people looked upon the prophet to be the Lord's messenger." And the word he delivered to be the Lord's message. And therefore, he received it, not as the word of man, but as the word of Almighty God. I wonder if you would receive it that way this morning. I wonder if you'd look at Haggai chapter 1. And I wonder if you would think through your life, or should I say, consider your ways. And if you'd recognize areas of your life where you're in conflict with God, would you be willing to repent of that today? Would you, would you be willing to put aside your comfort and your convenience? Would you be willing to put aside your plan for your life and surrender yourself to God? I don't even know what that might be. There may be a sin that you need to repent of. There may be something that you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing. There may be someone in here and he's sensing God's call to ministry. And you've run from that. You've determined, I'm not going to follow that. And because of that, you're you're... you're, you're Threatening or you're in the line to suffer consequences because you're in conflict with what God may be calling you to do. The worst of all would be this. If there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know Christ as Savior and Lord, There's someone here who's never surrendered their life to Him, maybe the Spirit of God has revealed to you exactly where you stand with Him and that it's time for you to get right. The Bible says that if you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, if you heard me preach last week, you heard me use that same verse in order to be saved. Anytime I preach, that's what you're going to hear about how you get saved, because there's only one way to get saved, amen. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God that you deserved, so that you can be forgiven of your sins, you can be redeemed. You can be bought out of the slavery to your sin and be brought into a relationship with Christ Jesus. And beloved, when we're brought into a relationship with Christ Jesus, we are brought into it to obey. That's the message of Haggai this morning. Matthew 16, 26 says, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Consider your ways this morning, church. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You for Your Word and the instruction that You give us in it. Thank You, God, that we're told exactly how we're supposed to live. We don't have to guess how we're supposed to live. We don't have to guess what to obey and what to do. We don't have to seek after things that aren't able for us to know and understand. But God, You've told us straightforward that we should follow You with all of our hearts. You've told us straightforward that we should lean on You for everything, that we should study Your Word and follow after. We are told that our paths are lightened for us to see, Lord, and that we're to follow the path that You've already determined for us. And God, I know because I know myself, That there's some here this evening or this morning who have sensed in their own life that they're disobeying, that their priorities have become misplaced, that all of a sudden they've told you, God, I'll do that later, when you expect for them to do it now. Father, would you grant them the grace that they need to understand that today, and would you grant them the courage that they need to repent of that sin and come back to you? And Lord, I know that there's others here this morning who may not know You. They've never given their life to You. They're not a Christ follower. They follow their own whims and their own desires and their own ways, which is what the world does, Lord. But You've allowed them to see today. You've pierced their heart and enabled them to see that, Lord, that's not what You want them to do any longer. You want them to surrender to You, to become a child of God and a Christ follower. God, I pray that You'd grant them courage to do that as well. And now, Lord, even as we come to this table, this table of remembrance to remember what You have done uh, through Christ Jesus on our behalf, Lord, that Christ died in our place on Calvary so that, Lord, our sins could be forgiven. Lord, I pray that You would uh, allow us to examine our own hearts and our own lives, repent of sin, come to You with a sense of reverence and holiness today as we experience this wonderful ordinance of your church. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.